Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I am Sadia Khan. Thank you for choosing to spend time with me and my thoughts. Now, here at Immigrantly, I believe in creating a safe space for authentic storytelling. Most stories that are created on our platform, but sometimes from other sources as well. And today we are doing just that. I'm going to share an episode called Coming Home from a podcast we love from the UCLA Labor Center called Rework. A group of undocumented youth crossed the border from the US into Mexico to cross back and turn themselves into border patrol. You must be thinking, why would you do something that would so blatantly risk you ever being able to come into this country again? Well, keep listening and you will find out. We follow the story of one courageous young person, Luis Leon, and the journey that he took from a small town in North Carolina to the border crossing in Laredo, Texas. You can find Rework wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to review them, give them a thumbs up, and share this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. From the UCLA Labor Center in KPFK, you're listening to Rework. I'm Stephanie Ratopper. And I'm Saba Wahid. We're at the border crossing in Laredo, Texas, on the Mexico side. There's a line of youth that have come together to cross into the United States. They wear caps and gowns of different colors. Blue, green, black, red. Some have tassels hanging from their caps. Others have backpacks slung over their shoulders. They are of diverse races, different heights, ages, but they all have one thing in common. They are all undocumented youth that call the U.S. home. You may have heard of this story. A couple groups of young undocumented immigrants, known as the Dream 9 and the Dream 30, cross the border from the U.S. into Mexico so that they can cross back and turn themselves into Border Patrol. Basically, they're self-deporting. This is a pretty bold move, and many people were up in arms about it. It's one thing to come out about your status or to protest for immigration reform. But why would you do something that would so blatantly risk you ever being able to come into this country again? In this week's episode of Rework... We follow the story of one courageous young person whose journey brought him to the border. Luis grew up in Marion, North Carolina, a tiny town at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains. It's a really small community with no more than 10,000 people. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I see anywhere else as my hometown like Marion. Everybody knows each other. You drive down the road, everybody waves at you. Growing up, uh, what I loved the most were like um, 
in the winter time because we live at the foothills of the mountain like looking up you see the whole entire mountain view so every morning i remember waking up and like you see the sunrise and then as the sun would hit the mountains at the very peak it would be pink and some people may say like oh you're like really the mountains you know but it's like something like a lot of people a lot of us my friends also we would like it and that's what like stood out the most for us because it was like calm and peaceful Luis's dad worked in a job that made him travel. His job was to clear the path of power lines along the highway all across the south. During the winter, he would work with the same company to plant trees to reforest. Luis only saw his father when he would come home on the weekends. As a result, Luis's mother was a huge influence on his life. And so the one who raised me was my mother, and my mother was like the one that always told me, like, from a very, very young age, she told me, you're undocumented in this country. So you do not have the same rights as your other friends that were born here. So for you to be have something in this life, in this country, you're going to have to work way harder than all of them. You're going to have to have better grades than everybody because they don't have, you don't, you are going to have a lot more struggle than they will. And so from a young age, she prepared me for this. She always implemented me being good in school, not, you know, not getting in trouble and always being kind to everybody and always getting involved. My mother was the one that taught me how to speak English. As I learned, she learned with me. We had to buy a Spanish-English dictionary, and she would like go out and word by word be like um, telling me what it meant. And so if my mom has the bravery and was able to be successful in a country that was not made for her, I'm really astonished by that, and like I want to be able to make her proud. Take me to North Carolina So Luis buckled down and worked hard to get good grades and focus on his work. Toward the end of high school, though, it began to dawn on him that his next step was uncertain. And I knew whenever I graduated high school, that could be the end of my educational career. So I was trying to get the best out of it and trying to uh, be the best at it so that after I graduated, I would maybe have an opportunity to go to a college. And so 2011, I graduated high school. I applied to different colleges and they accepted me. But whenever they would ask me for my social security number or my status, I'd be like, I'm undocumented. And that's when the whole thing would change. And so I tried and tried. I looked in different universities, but they would accept me. But they would say, like, Bo, but you have to pay at least $32,000 a year. And I was like, that's impossible. School was about to start in two weeks. My mom was like, but there's always, you know, that possibility that you can go to Mexico. But I, I did not want to go to Mexico. All my friends, you know, going, living in the dorm and going through the whole college experience is what I wanted. Eventually, you know, I just sat down at the table and I was thinking, you really want to go to college? And then I was just, one day I just decided, okay, you're going to Mexico. It was a glimmer of hope. The thought running through Luis's head was that if he went back to Mexico, he could attend the university there. And then maybe he would become so successful that he could attain a visa that could bring him back to the U.S., Two weeks before the fall semester started, Luis bought a one-way ticket to Mexico. And then the day came for Luis to take his flight. Oh, that that day was horrible. And I remember just standing at the airport, and it was like I had the ticket in my hand. I had my passport in my other hand, and I was just, like, hugging my mom and little brothers, telling them goodbye, that I loved them. And I would keep telling my little—the my, littlest one is my sister. She's, we're four boys and one girl. 
and she's the littlest one and she was like when are you coming back I was like I'll be back soon and then when I hugged her she started crying and that was like the hardest part like we were all holding it in and then she started crying and everybody just started bawling at that point it was really hard because uh there was a big line on top of that the cross the to the, the, the uh, like the security and just sitting there and looking back and like watching my family stay behind and I was getting closer to security and I was like should I back out or should I go in and it was like one more step and like there's no turning back and um just seeing my family there and like knowing I'm probably not going to see them for a really long time was really hard. But my desire to go to college, like, I guess overwhelmed me. And I took the step, went past the security and I hopped on the plane. family lives in Quintana Roo, which is the Caribbean state in Mexico. And uh, I flew on the plane from Charlotte, North Carolina to Cancun, Mexico. And being on that plane, I, my luck, I got stuck with a plane full of people going to one wedding and everybody was happy and excited. And I always remember stuck being in a corner and I was bawling my eyes out. You know, I was like, all oh, these folks are like having a good time. I, I even shut the window. I didn't want to see anything. Mexico brought new sights and sounds that opened Luis's eyes and helped him understand his roots. But even amidst these new experiences, he found himself lonely and nostalgic. I lived in Mexico when I was five. And so when I get back, I don't know anybody. I didn't even know who my grandmother was, like, you know. And so it was really hard. Uh, the family didn't understand my ways of being, you know. My, even though we we're from the same family, living in the United States, your your family roots and your family traditions change. You know, there was no Thanksgiving. There was no Fourth of July. Little things that I didn't, you know, pay attention to while I was here. Then when I got to Mexico, I was like, oh, my God. Which really made me sad. You know, Thanksgiving came around. I was like, oh, yeah, we're preparing the dinner and everything. And my family in Mexico was like, it's just a normal day. Another big culture shock was finding out that he couldn't attend public university there, either. Since all of his education was in the U.S., he was considered a foreigner, which made it extremely difficult to insert into the public school system. Instead, he scrapped together funds to attend a low-quality private university. The professors often canceled classes without warning, and Luis didn't feel challenged. And it was many stuff like that that just built on top, you know, the uh, language barrier that I was hitting, that, you know, my Spanish was not good enough. Um, I spoke Spanish, I knew how to read and write a little bit of it, but, you know, I was, like, at a kindergarten level, honestly. Because, you know, growing up here, and I never had the use for it. My mom, you know, she, she tried to teach me, and I did learn a little bit, but it wasn't, like, college level. That's, those were my days in Mexico. Go to college, go back home, go to college, back home. I, in the first year, I really didn't go out anywhere. I didn't want to go out anywhere. All I did was go back home, get on the computer, and see what my family was doing. You know, I would look at Google Maps a lot, you know. I would call my mom all the time, like, hey, you know, what's changing, what's new? You know, those, that's how I kept myself. Like, I think that's what kept me going, you know, that I had good communication with my family, but still, you know, it was really depressing. Like, that was just my first year. Then after that, you know, I started meeting friends, you know. Some people started accepting me, 
And so that's when I just started going out a little bit more. And then right when I was starting to go out, right when I was like tr- starting to like, okay, maybe I can, you know, deal with this. That's when, you know, the, the DACA passed. Just a year after Luis had been living morning, in Mexico, President Obama took a bold first step in immigration reform. To mend our nation's immigration policy, specifically for certain young people, sometimes called dreamers. Over the next few months, eligible individuals who do not present a risk to national security or public safety will be able to request temporary relief from deportation proceedings and apply for work authorization. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, was a historic move. DACA had the potential to impact 1.9 million immigrant youth. It provided them with legitimacy and stability. It meant they could get jobs and could help them provide for their families. Immigrant youth activists in the U.S. had pushed hard to make this happen. The news broadcast teary-eyed hugs and reactions as they all celebrated. Meanwhile, though, Luis, who would have been eligible, was now in Mexico. That moment was horrible for me. I remember I, like, I started crying how mad I was. I was happy that I had passed, you know, for my friends that were there. But at the same time, in my case, on my like personal feelings, I was like, why didn't you guys, you know, do this while I was there? You know, why am I being left out? And like, I was feeling so stressed out and depressed. And, and I was feeling, I was getting desperate. I was like, I need to go back. I need to go back. I need to go back. And so that's what, you know, led me uh, to another big decision in my life, which was crossing the border illegally on my own. Luis then had a crazy idea, a desperate idea. If he could just sneak back into the country under wraps, maybe no one would ever know that he had left. Remember, he came over before he was in kindergarten, so this is something he barely remembers. And now he has to do it all on his own. It's a complicated process to cross the border and a dangerous one. Luis had to do his research to figure out how he could do it. Finally, he connected with people who could help him cross. So what I did is that I started exercising a lot. I started running a lot. I started, you know, I started getting back in shape because, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to go through this. I need to be in good shape, you know, just in case I get, like, I run into trouble. I need to be able to have the stamina, the the run for a long distance and walk for a long period of times. And then I finally, uh, you know, hopped on a bus and went to the border. And um, it was like, that was, like, I think the, the, the scariest most uh, horrifying experience of my life because that that was like, let's say the lowest point of my life where I had um, to sleep in like concrete floors and in, in, in the dirt. The first time I crossed the border, I got caught immediately like we crossed the river and then like 10 minutes walking in we got caught and um at that moment I was like no no you're not supposed to catch me you're not supposed to know I'm doing this you know I didn't want to do this but you know you guys weren't supposed to know and then when as soon as they caught me I knew there goes everything like I knew it I I I, I knew everything was over no more college in the U.S. no more DACA you know I just ruined everything and um they sent me back, and after they sent me back to Mexico, um, I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this for college anymore. I'm not doing this because I want to apply for DACA. I'm doing this because I want to see my family. I'm doing this because I want to go back to the town I call home. 
And so I did it again and again and again and again. I did it after that um, four times, and I got caught four times. Um, I didn't care. And after the fourth time, they told me, look, you have a 20-year sentence. You cannot apply for a visa. You cannot apply for anything for 20 years. You are deported for 20 years. And if we catch you again, we're going to give you 180 days of jail time. And that was like, okay, I can't do this no more. I have, like, I've, I've used all my strikes. I, I struck out. Um, they sent me back to Mexico. I went back to my hometown in Veracruz. Um, and, like, I was just... I was crashed at that moment. I, like, all the doors were closed for me. Luis lost all hope. He could no longer see his family, and now he didn't have school to return to either. Because his family was from the coastal region, he found work in Cancun at a resort. It was really crazy for me, you know, never in a million years I thought of working in a hotel or a resort, you know. For me, that was not my kind of environment or the kind of place I would imagine myself working, and especially in customer service. Whenever I would get out of work and I would go to the beach, because I would live right like two blocks from the beach, I would go there and then I was amazed of how, you know, foreign people would come into Mexico thinking that that is their playground and would try, and I would see them like uh, ask for people to move, like, hey, could you move, like we ordered this part of the beach. You know, I hated it, you know. I hated working there, you know. I hated everything. I was going through so much hatred, you know. And not towards anybody, just towards myself, you know. I hated myself for, like, the decisions I had taken. And then one day, Luis came home and saw a new message on his Facebook. And so one day, Santiago adds me on Facebook. And he's like, hey, look, I don't know if you remember me. We lived in the same town. We went to the same elementary school, middle school, high school. But we were not part of the same friend, group of friends. So, you know, we knew each other just by name and face. But that's it. Santiago was part of a group called the National Immigrant Youth Alliance, the NIA. And they had a plan. The plan was basically that a group of undocumented youth were going to cross the border back to Mexico and then turn themselves into Border Patrol. Santiago asked if Luis would join them. It turned out that the group had been staging similar actions for several years. Their idea was to use the one thing that they feared the most, the threat of getting deported, and make it a strength. It was a way to get inside detention centers and understand more about others inside facing deportation. It was also a tool to organize and to help bring to light the cases of so many people facing deportation every day. And immediately I said yes. After he told me, like, you're going to come to the border, you're going to turn to immigration, we're going to try to get you out, and we're going to try to reunite with your family, I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I never asked or questioned him. It sparked something in me, you know, the little, the littlest uh, opportunity I had to maybe be with my family again. And so I get to the border, um, and I meet the, uh, the rest of the Dream 9. I met the three that self-deported themselves a week before and then went to Mexico just to cross with us, and I knew this is real. You know, this is real. These kids are like, they're crazy, but this is real. And I'm, and I'm going to be just as crazy as, they, as it needs to be. Luis arrived on a Friday, and the idea was to cross the border on Monday. That weekend, the first weekend they met, was the only chance they had to plan together and go through the training on what they needed to do while they were inside. 
They taught us uh, like how to prepare ourselves mentally just in case if we were in there for a period of six months because it could take up to six months just to get us out. They told us this is the first time we're doing it, and we also don't even know if it's going to work. And I was like, you know what? I have nothing to lose. That doesn't matter. I'm in all the way. And so Monday morning came, and they prepared to cross. They dressed in cap and gowns and walked through the streets of Nogales, linked arm in arm, prepared for anything. And then I get to the border, and there's like all these cameramen. We actually get closer, and then I see on the other side, and I see like this gigantic group of people um, with banners and, and, you know, posters and megaphones, and they're screaming out our names, bring them home, bring them home. And I was like, tears are trying to, were almost running out my eyes at that moment because I had never thought I would see some, so much support for me just to come back, you know, because before that, my thought across the border was like, you're just going to get rejected. This country has rejected you. And then seeing the uh, people from that country that had rejected me, wanting me to come back, was like that moment that like made me, helped me stand up. I had been like, you know, knocked down over and over again. And that was like that moment I had, uh, the moment I was able to stand up again and, you know, fight back. I get up to the entry point and there's a female officer there and she was like, what are you here for? I'm here to go home. That's what I tell her. And she giggled. She laughed at me. And I was like, no, seriously, I'm here to go home. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE, checked Luis and the rest of the group, soon to be called the Dream Nine, into the Eloy Detention Center in Arizona. It was in the middle of the desert, a huge complex surrounded by barbed wire. I remember driving to it, seeing it out the window. It was just like a prison. We were like, they're sticking us in a prison. Barbed wire, tall barbed wire, electric fences. You know, they patrolled the, the entire uh, campus with trucks, you know, and these trucks actually, the guards there had shotguns in their trucks. And so it was like, it was a scary view from the outside. Inside, immigration officials controlled each hour of the day. They would wake us up at 4 o'clock in the morning just to eat breakfast. And breakfast was like this really, really bad and nasty oatmeal with like a piece of bread and then back to bed. And then they wake us up and they make us go outside at midday when it was like the hottest. And we were, it was horrible. And they would lock us up uh, like three times a day just to count us. After it's every, we went to lunch, come back, they would lock us up and count us. They would take us outside, bring us back in and count us. They would take us to eat dinner, they come back and count us. And then walking through it, it was like barbed wire everywhere. I was like, why are they treating us like this? Like, we're not criminals. We just want looking for a better life. We're normal people. So one of the main missions of the group had been to meet people and hear their stories. Luis and the Dream Nine began to get to know the detainees. And they opened to us immediately. They opened up to us, and they was like, no, nah, this place is horrible. It's like, you know, some of them told us they had just got an isolation because they put them in solitary confinement because they would try to speak out, because they wanted to speak to a better attorney, because they were tired of the treatment. And so many of them were, were scared of being in there. And then men there told us they had been in there for two years, two and a half years, just waiting to know if he was going to be deported. One detainee, Francisco, was inside for driving without a license. And he had been in there for six months because um, he had his own landscaping business. And then one day while he was on the way to work on the highway, he hit a checkpoint. When he got there, well, obviously he didn't have a license, so they took him in there. He had never had any kind of traffic violation. You know, that he had no DUIs. He was really worried because his wife didn't work. And he had three U.S. citizen children that were being left behind. He lost his business. All his machinery was, his wife sold it. His family lost everything. By the time we got there, actually two days later, he was deported. 
Most of the cases are like that. These are just regular men that I met that all like I would say 90% of them were in there because they were um had some minor traffic violations like driving without a license or like maybe rolling a stop sign. President Obama has deported nearly 2 million people during his 5 years in office, more than any other administration. 11 million undocumented immigrants in the US live under the constant threat of detention and deportation. Across the country, people have been urging President Obama to use his executive power to put a stop to deportations. They've done sit-ins, blocked ICE office entrances, and chained themselves to the wheels of deportation buses. On the girls' side, they were able to start a hunger strike where a number of the women detainees refused food and water. For this, immigration placed two of the Dream 9 young women into solitary confinement. The Dream 9 action gained national attention and led 34 House members to sign a letter asking for their release. Meanwhile, all members of the Dream 9 filed for asylum. Shortly afterward, they received the news that they would be free to go, released on parole. And on that day, they told us we were going to be let out. And I called my mom and I'm like, Mom, you know, I got some news, you know. I'm like, and she was like, what is it? And my mom was like, my mom thought I was going to be sent back to Mexico because of my 20-year deportation. I was like, I'm coming home. And I remember my mom would be like, my dad's name Rodrigo. My mom he was like, Rodrigo, Rodrigo, he's coming back, he's coming back. And like she was crying on the phone and screaming. My, I could hear my little brothers jumping around all over the house. And then the next day, like, they gave us parole immediately. I remember the guard knocking at my door. He was like, hey, you're getting out of here. And I was like, getting out of here where, you know? And they were like, no, you're out. You're like, they're letting you loose. They did our paperwork. They gave us our parole papers. You know, they gave us all our belongings back. You know, we changed into normal clothing again. They shot us on a van, and they took us down to Tucson, Arizona. And then we realized they didn't want to drop us off at the Greyhound station because there was a bunch of media there waiting for us. And they were like, the Greyhound station's that way. Just walk. And then you just, like, immediately, it was like a matter of seconds, they got out. Like, by the time we stepped out the van, our stuff were already on the road. And they were like, leave. And so we, like, we got our stuff out of our bags. We put our boot bags on. And it was like, what do you say it was? And it was like that way. And I remember walking that way and seeing so many people there and cameras with banners, you know, greeting us saying, welcome home. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm in the U.S. You know, I was, like, breathing in the air. And I was like, I am so happy. I'm breathing in fresh air. And I'm in the United States. Something I had dreamed for since I was eight years old finally came true. And then Luis made the trip back home to North Carolina. He decided to surprise his family, and as he pulled into Marion, he snuck into his sister's room. And so I remember sitting in my little sister's room. It was so good to see a little pink room. And uh, I sitting in there, and I hear my mom and my aunts and some of my friends were there, and like they need to get here. Like where are they? Yeah, oh, they're in South Carolina. And then so I gently like just opened the door, and I like I walked into the kitchen, and I was like, "Hey, mom, could you have anything to eat?" And she was like, she just paused, and then when she suddenly saw me and recognized me, she just started screaming. And then my little sisters and brother were like, you know, they were shocked. Everybody was shocked to see me. And so we finally hugged each other, like hugging my mom and dad and family all at the same time was so amazing. I remember that night, um, that first night I slept in my room again. The next morning I felt little fingers like poking my face and it was all my brother was like, he's real, you know, he's back. He's finally back. Back in the U.S. now, Luis says it's like seeing things with brand new eyes. He appreciates every moment, and he's willing to fight for it. To folks that are in the same situation as me, I would, uh, you know, my thought is, like, I appreciate what you have. 
especially you know students in high school um and like um, younger dreamers like you know that are of illegal status appreciate what you have work harder for what you want um and you know uh fight for it because you never know when you're gonna lose it and you never know how long you're gonna lose it and if you ever get it back and so in all of this experience for me you know it being in these attention centers being um deported you know leaving my family behind not seeing it for a long period of time which changed me a lot i appreciate things you know i enjoy my family time um i enjoy uh, everything i do and um um now um you know i'm here to uh, fight more I'm here to, like, you know, speak out. Not afraid to, like, you know, sit down and let, you know, other people decide for me. But I'm here now to fight for what I need and fight for what I want. I mean, now I'm here making my own choices and being with the people that have the same that have the same thoughts as me and fighting with them for these choices. Now, Luis is back home with his family in Marion. He continues to fight for in-state tuition in North Carolina and still hopes to go to college. They tell me I'm too young to understand They say I'm caught up in a dream Life will pass me by if I don't open up my eyes Well, that's fine by me So wake me up when it's all over This episode covered Luis Leon, a part of the National Immigrant Youth Alliance. To find out more about NIA, visit their Facebook page at National Immigrant Youth Alliance. To learn more about the current national efforts to stop deportations, visit notonemoredeportation.com. This week's episode was produced by Stephanie Ratopper, Sabo Wahid, Vanessa Moreno, Tyler Millis, and Clarine Obando LaCruz. Music support by Francisco Garcia Nava and Armand Wahid. Special thanks to Henry Walton. For more information about Rework, visit our website at reworkradio.org. There you can listen to previous shows and subscribe to our podcast. You can also tweet your reactions to this show to at rework underscore radio. Until next time, rethink, rework. I'm so glad we were able to share this particular story with you, but I would like to hear your thoughts. Do you think we should do more feed drops? What kind of stories do you think are missing from our platform? And what is that you want to listen more Anyways, don't forget to follow us on our socials, Instagram at ImmigrantlyPod, Twitter at Immigrantly underscore pod. We have a TikTok, guys, at ImmigrantlyPodcast. And you can always check out more information, episodes, what's happening in Immigrantly space on our website, ImmigrantlyPod.com. Until next time, take care.